Hello everyone and welcome to what I'm hoping is going to be the first of many episodes of The Jukebox, which is a new podcast that I've kind of had the idea for for quite some time. It's taken various different forms, um, various different names. I settled on this title about five minutes before I started recording this. So, um, you know, I guess I'm kind of stuck with it now, depending on the success of it. I've always wanted for quite some time now to kind of do a podcast where I just talk about things that I've seen, you know, maybe do it like a weekly thing, things I've seen this week, blah, 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 and talk about it, my views on them, you know, movies as they're coming out live, um, things I haven't seen that I've wanted to see for years and years, which is kind of the basis of at least this first chunk of what this podcast is going to be. And then maybe I'll, you know, bring in more like current events and currently releasing TVs and TVs, TV shows and movies um, as time advances and stuff. Um, but for now, I really wanted to prioritise this as this was kind of an excuse to like finally force me to sit down and watch things that I've wanted to watch for literal years and just have never gotten around to. Um, and here we are. I finally did it. Um, finally sat down, watched some things, worked out what I wanted to do, um, you know, first um, for this first debut pilot episode of the podcast. Um, I mean, I'm sure if you're watching slash listening to this, you know what I'm going to be talking about in this pilot episode um because this has been kind of on my mind for like over 10 years that i've wanted to watch this and it's been like always so near the top of my list of things that i needed to see um so i knew this had to be the first episode if i was you know actually going to do this um and since we're here and i'm trying it why not go for it um because this is kind of a movie studio in general that i just haven't delved into any of their things um before and i haven't I mean, I've been aware of them, um, as I will talk about, kind of like a prelude to actually getting into my thoughts on the film, which, by the way, I should probably say, oops, um, is Spirited Away. Um, and yeah, I have kind of been so aware of their work and how popular and loved they are that I've always wanted to check it out. And in particular, this one is like the one as I as an outsider and like in the general public of which I am one. Um, this is the one I've always heard the most about. I, I, you know, I've heard of like my neighbor Totoro, I believe is one, but Spirited Away has always been kind of, it's always had a presence in the background of my life. I was, I've always been aware of it. And, you know, some of the imagery and iconography from it, I've been aware of mainly, um, the kind of image of, is it, it's the no face, isn't it? It's what the character's called, the no face. Um, you know, that kind of mask almost that it wears. Um, I, I've been very familiar with that for the longest time I just I until a few days ago I had no idea what that means and yeah I think my original title for this was like I've no I'd never seen or I just watched blah 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 and um, that was going to kind of be the title of it but then I, I did a bit of research and there's another podcast with a very similar premise and a, a very very similar name it was basically identical I was like well I'm not going to step on their toes so the jukebox it is which is what my original title was for a podcast that I had planned to do before um, about like currently airing things um, that I just never got around to doing. Um, but I'm forcing myself to you know, actually do it now. So here we are. I've rumbled enough. That's kind of the general basis of what this podcast series will hopefully be. Um, and yeah, episode one, Spirited Away. I feel like there was a lot to take in um, with Spirited Away. From further research and stuff, it does feel like this is just what is to be expected from the studio, which I think is fair. Um, but this was a lot for me to take in as like my first foray into um, this studio's films. Studio Ghibli? Ghibli? 
I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, and I, I don't know why I did this. I don't know why I did Spirited Away first, to be honest, because I've really thrown myself in at the deep end here by just giving myself loads of characters, loads of places and locations, loads of people who worked on the movie whose names I'm absolutely going to butcher. So I apologise in advance for getting basically all of these wrong because I, I really am awful at that kind of thing. So I, I am sincerely apologise if... Um, I say all these names completely incorrectly. Uh, you know, you would have thought I would start off with something a bit, you know, easier for me to get to the grips with. And I haven't even done a podcast in this kind of style before, where it's just me um, talking about movies, much less something as important as Spirited Away. And, you know, all these people who have worked so hard on it and did such a brilliant job on it. And I'm going to absolutely butcher the pronunciations of their names. So apologies for that. I watched um, I watched it in Japanese, you know, the original language that it was made in. I, 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 and it just had, like, the English subtitles there. There was an English dub available as well. I know, like, the subs or dubs debate for very different, you know, all these various different things is ever-present in so many different things nowadays. Um, but I really wanted to consume this the way it was originally made. Um, so if I've made a terrible mistake, again, apologies. And if it's watch worth watching again with the English dub on, on top. I did kind of rewatch the opening five minutes with the English dub after I'd finished watching it the first time just to kind of see what the difference was and stuff. Um, but I just thought, you know, to really get the impression of what they intended to do with Spirited Away and what the studio actually, you know, set out to make, I thought it made sense to get the, the best sense of it as watching it in its original language that it was made in um, and just kind of keeping along with the subtitles. And, you know, that really helped force me to pay attention to it properly so i feel like I, I did get to grips with it a lot more because I, I had to pay attention to the subtitles otherwise i was going to be completely lost even though there's a lot of wacky shit <laughs> in spirited away um and stuff i'm just like what on earth is going on here um i, I do feel like i got the basic gist of what the plot was and what was going on with it and everything you know cause you really get like the emotions and the performances that they intended to be attached to the story i feel like um so yeah it, it just felt right to me so anything i'm saying in terms of like my favorite lines or you know voice actor performances is all coming from the japanese version rather than the english dubbed version um so if i'm praising like a certain character just you know just so you're aware what version of that you know performance i'm talking about and in terms of you know me approaching this is like it's my first time viewing it i also i did a bit of research after i'd seen it in terms of like you know some of the production things and some of the behind the scenes facts but I didn't go too deep into it because that's not really what I want this podcast to be just my first impressions of it maybe without the context um you know so I, I don't know every single thing there is to know about the making of this film and the behind the scenes stuff you know were there any production issues were there any cast changes you know were there any animation difficulties how long did it take them to make I don't know anything quite like that I've just got a, a brief kind of idea of how the ideas came about and what they did and stuff like that um, this is mainly just going to be focusing on my opinion of what was presented to me um, rather than the wider context. You know, there are so many people out there who can definitely, you know, give you that information a lot better than I ever could, especially because this is my first Studio Ghibli film. Ghibli? Ghibli? Who knows? Um, I mean, they probably know, don't they? Being the studio themselves. Oh dear, good start. But anyway, um, so yeah. It was directed and written by Heo Miyazaki. Again, 
apologies if I butchered that. I think Miyazaki is the correct pronunciation. Um, and Toshio Suzuki um, was a producer on it. Joe Hisashi, Hisashi um, did the music. And the production company is obviously Studio Ghibli. Um, I'm I'm taking a, a punt on Ghibli there, aren't I? Um, and then Toho was the distributor. Uh, ran for 125 minutes, so just over two hours. Didn't feel like it, I will say. So I think that's, you know, we're off to a good start, if that's my initial comment there. Um, had a budget of, and again, this is what Wikipedia told me, so I'm sorry if this is incorrect. Um, 190, uh, no, 192. 19.2 million dollar budget, I believe. And made $395.8 million at the box office. Did bloody well, essentially. I think those figures are in terms of its opening in Japan. Because this came out in 2001 originally. But it didn't. we didn't get it in the UK until 2003. I don't know if we got it. And then we, it had the English dub with that when it came out. Again, I, I didn't do too much research into that. Um, but either way, the UK first got it in 2003. Um which was a surprise to me, actually, because, you know, I, I guess nowadays we're kind of spoiled on the fact that if a film's coming out, it's probably, you know, a couple of months at most you're going to be waiting somewhere else in the world rather than actual years. You know, video games are the, the more famous examples that I've kind of seen of, like, something coming out in Japan and then we get it, like, five years later or something. Or sometimes never at all. Um, I remember there's a Professor Layton and Phoenix Wright game. Like, they, they did, like, a crossover game. I don't think we ever got it in the UK. It could be, it might not be the case anymore. Something in the back of my head saying maybe we have that now. Um, but, you know, for a long time, it just wasn't looking like it was going to come to the UK. And it still might not have. I still haven't played it, but I would love to because I love both those franchises. Um, so, you know, I have heard of that kind of thing before, but it's still really surprising to kind of hear, um, you know, that um, it took two years before the UK saw this. So I was seven when this came out in the UK and I was five when it came out originally in Japan um so that's it's quite something um so yeah in terms of like a brief summary of like where it all came from just for context before we delve into it properly um Miyazaki uh, took some summer vacations at a cabin every year with um his family and like family friends or friends of his family and stuff um and in this instance you know it was a group of like young girls, I think, accompanied them on the trip. Um, and he decided to make a film for them um, and, you know, create kind of a main character that they could look up to, which I thought was kind of an interesting, quite wholesome kind of um, idea. And he was inspired on a bathhouse setting, because um, obviously the majority of this film takes place in the wacky-ass bathhouse. Um, and he took that inspiration from one of the um, bathhouses in his hometown, um, which is quite cool. And buildings were based on the Edo Tokyo Open Air Architectural Museum. That's kind of where they got some of the inspiration for how the buildings in Spirited Away looked. Um, it was number one at the Japanese box office for 11 weeks and spent 16 weeks, you know, kind of near the top in, in total, which is kind of insane. Like number one for 11 weeks, it's mad, nearly three months. Um, and was the highest grossing opening or highest grossing film maybe in Japanese history. I think I've skipped a word there in my notes, so this is already a great start, Liam. Well done. Um, I think it was the highest gross in opening in Japanese history. Is it still the case? I don't know, but at the time it certainly was that. So did massively, massively well in Japan when it came out. Um, I think it had like the biggest audience turnout to watch it in terms of actual numbers of people going to see it ever at the time. I don't know, again, if it's been beaten since or not, but huge, huge success, obviously, and, and no wonder, you know, 
the rest of the world kind of, you know, I guess wanted dubbed versions of it for themselves to kind of share the story. Um, so yeah, clearly did very well. And um, the dub, not the dub, the um, original version that I watched um, starred Rumi Hiragi, Hiragi as Chihiro, um, Miyu Irino Iriho as Haku, um, Mari Natsuki as Yubaba slash Zeniba, I think, you know, the two sisters. Um, they're both played by the same person. And Bunta Suya, Sugawaga, Suyawara as Kamaji. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the main core characters, if you ask me. That's kind of the basics of, like, some of the cast, a bit of backstory into how it performed and, you know, how it was kind of produced and everything. Again, much more detailed summaries of, like, the behind the scenes and everything out there. Uh, much better people going much more in depth than I can offer. But, um, you know, just a bit of context if you wanted to know. And there you have it. Again, sorry if I've butchered all of those names. Um, but yeah, I just kind of referring to my notes now that I made as the film was going on. Um, you know, sometimes I'd pause it just to make a few notes so that I didn't miss any, you know, key dialogue or whatever because I was, you know, still paying attention to the subtitles. I actually do normally... I don't normally like watching things with subtitles, even like just watching it in English with English subtitles. Because for me, I'm, I just, I find myself focusing on um, the subtitles and just reading them and not actually watching what's going on and paying any attention to the actual characters and the action there. I think with Spirited Away, I found a really good balance with that because I think there are a lot of kind of almost set piece sequences and a lot of sequences that are quite visual. And there's a lot of visual storytelling in this. You know, you... you you get a real sense that whatever's been going on in, you know, this abandoned park, whatever, um, you really get a sense like this has been going on for a long time and it has like a really well-established kind of system and economy. I think that's kind of the, the thing that really struck me early on. So I, I, I will say I think I preferred the first half of the film to the second half. Um, the second half to me just felt like a, a series of events rather than too much connectivity between them. Whereas I feel like the first half really kind of set up, you know, what was going on and the world building and everything. And I feel like the actual plot of the film then happened more so in towards the second half. Um, I mean, you know, you have the basic setup of Chihiro trying to get, you know, a job at the bathhouse so she can stay close to her parents and turn them back from being pigs, which is a whole thing that happened. Um... But then it just feels like there's another thing that happens and then another thing that happens and all these new elements being introduced in the second half that I think I got a bit overwhelmed by. Um, but I do think it kind of all makes sense. But I think the second half just felt like a bunch of maybe shorter stories that then just kind of led one to the other rather than having the connectivity that I feel like the first half of the film had, um, you know, really delving into the world and everything. Um, but I still, you know, I still really enjoyed the second half as well and, um, a few kind of little plot beats and stuff that I wasn't expecting. Some really nice character moments in there, some really nice performances. And just visually, the fact that this film is like 20 years old is nuts because it looks great. It looks better than some films today, if you ask me. Um, so I, I love the kind of animation style and everything going on with it. You know, it, it's a really beautifully crafted world and characters and everything. I think it looks stunning. There's some great visuals in there. Um, great kind of character designs, you know, some really kind of unique um kind of imagery and locations and lighting and you know it's a really colorful and um 
yeah, I, I definitely couldn't have predicted what was going to go down in this film. I, I knew absolutely nothing about the plot going into it, which is a genuine coincidence, really, because I think the biggest impact up until this point that Spirited Away had had on me, because, again, I mentioned I was aware of it, I'd just never seen it um, for years and years. Um, I was in year eight at school, and for our English project, we worked on this for, like, months. We had to kind of design, like, a theme park, and, like, advertise it, and, like, write about it, stuff like that. It was kind of like a big project we undertook in our, my second year of secondary school. Um, and we, you know, we worked in groups to kind of create it. And I called our theme park in our group Spirited Away. That was the name of our theme park, um, just because I'd heard the name of the film. And I thought that that sounded really cool. It's like a name and a title. Um, I have a thing with titles. I don't know if anyone else has this. I just really like a good title. You know, it actively annoys me when somebody's got a really good title and then the actual thing isn't very good. I'm like, you've wasted a great title there. Luckily, Spirited Away didn't do that. Um, but, you know, I remember hearing it and thinking, that sounds really cool. Maybe it was around that time I was seeing like adverts for it or something. I don't know. But the name was in my mind and we just called it that. Um, and I had no idea. It, it really took me by surprise. And I was like kind of stunned when I watched, started watching the film. And, you know, the setting is in an abandoned theme park. I had no idea. It was a complete coincidence that I, I'd called it that for this school project. Um, so I did find that quite funny. Because um, if I did know somehow, I'd completely forgotten. Um, it would kind of make sense, maybe. But, yeah, so I did find that quite funny. And that kind of, ironically enough, got me really drawn into the film really quickly. Because, um, like, oh, who'd have thought? What a coincidence. And that kind of nostalgia for that time in my life then kind of allowed me to have an emotional connection to this film that I, you know, I'd been watching for like seven or eight minutes by this point. Um, so yeah, there was that. Um, and yeah, the basic premise to kind of start off the film, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of talk through the plot and then just go from there, really like chipping in with my thoughts as we go. Um, so we start off with our lead character, Chihiro, Chihiro, again, sorry if I've pronounced it horribly. Um, she's moving house with her parents. They're on their way um to you know where they're going to be moving to and my my f very first note for this film never again never could have guessed it was please wear your seatbelt um that was my first impression of Chihiro um the fact that she didn't have her seatbelt on and I was like if this goes horribly wrong then you know this could be a very dark film <laughs> it kind of was in a way but it could have got really dark if you know there was a moment where um Chihiro's dad like stops the car and like slams it because they've kind of taken a wrong turning or whatever. That's kind of the big premise of how things go astray. Um, I really thought like the abrupt stop. I thought they were going to make a point of her not wearing her seatbelt, and there was going to be an abrupt stop to the car, and she was just going to be flung forward, hit her head, and then all this was going to be in her head. That's kind of where I thought it was going at first. Obviously, that wasn't the case, and it, as the ending of the film kind of shows, you know, it, this all did genuinely happen because she still had that headband on. You know, the hair ties. She still had that on at the end of the film which obviously was made for her while she was there so clearly the events did happen and everything um but yeah that's where i thought that was going so i was like this is child please put your seatbelt on um so that was my first note in case anyone was that curious um they clearly take a, a wrong turning they find this you know spooky looking tunnel um and i guess they're like why we're here let's investigate this um so they're kind of walking through there um 
I've written stained glass windows here and windows with a capital W, kind of like, you know, the Windows logo when you like boot up your computer or something. It's like the four squares of different colours. I think there was a stained glass window during this sequence when they're walking in that just had that imagery. So I was like, ha, stained glass windows, because it's a pun, because it was called, you know, windows when, you know, the system on your computer and stuff. So I found that quite funny. Um, but also just the imagery of that looked amazing. You know, some of the lighting in this film, you know, how do they do it? How do these people kind of animate this? It's insane. Um, so yeah, they kind of walk through this tunnel, find that beyond it, you know, it was actually an entrance to a now seemingly abandoned theme park. Um, and then I, I think is when they're kind of starting to explore this and looking around this place, you know, Chihiro is very reluctant to be there because she thinks, oh, they're going to get in trouble, you know, and they're going to get told off. Because um, they start smelling food, so like, oh, it's not abandoned after all. That you know, there's people here, there's food here. Um, so the parents are then in absolute mood and are very keen to just go off and you know shove food down their gobs. Uh, you know, absolute king and queen. You know, we love relatable characters. Um, and Chihiro's like, no, we should go back. You know, this is a bad idea. Basically, she was being very bloody sensible. Um, but I quite like that her parents were very keen to just explore this. Normally it would be the other way around. I think that's what I liked. They really kind of threw a curveball with, you'd think the kid would be the one who's like, oh, an abandoned theme park, cool, let's explore this. But the parents were kind of like that. And the kid was the one who's like, no, we, you know, this is irresponsible, this is a bad idea, we should go back. Um, we don't get to really know Chihiro's parents that well. And um, they don't have a huge amount of screen time. They're basically here at the beginning and at the end, that's it. Um, so I, I thought as a character beat, this was quite nice. that They seemed quite keen to explore this place. And then they just gorge on the food and like, oh you know, they do kind of just start eating it being like oh you know we'll pay them when they show up again whoever's running this restaurant because they just start digging into all this food at this place um i'm like what if that isn't what if it's not a restaurant what if that's not there for you and they're just they're tucking away that ah oh, we'll pay them it's fine um so you know maybe not the most responsible of parents but also just the fact that you know they were moving somewhere new and they'd had this sense of adventure about them you do kind of get a sense of you know the people that they're kind of like, even if you don't see that much of them. So I thought it would establish those characters quite well, considering we really don't get to know them. Um, and they're far from like the main characters in this movie. Um, and it's more about, you know, obviously the focus being on Chihiro and her kind of reluctance. Um, but then she also kind of almost inherits the sense of adventure and the sense of exploration that her parents have. Because while they're stuffing their faces, they kind of follow the smell of food. Um, and the, her parents start tucking in and, Chihiro's like, I'm out, I'm a head out. Um, and she just gets distracted and starts looking around and stuff. And, um, yeah, sees all these different buildings and the architecture of the place, you know, seemingly abandoned apart from, you know, this one set of food that her parents are now eating from. Um, and that's when she kind of sees the bathhouse, I think, and like um, all these different structures and like this long bridge as well that's kind of leading to the big building that's clearly going to be like a focus of something later on, but you don't quite know what it is yet. Um, so I really liked all of that and it's during this sequence when they're kind of first enter the park and they're exploring it um, it really struck me um, well two things really um, the music um, which I think stays consistently fantastic throughout and I believe it's the same composer for like all the Studio Ghibli films um, so that's good to know and it just had a really nice kind of feel to it very it reminded me a lot actually of Professor Layton and obviously you know all like these Japanese exports and properties and stuff. I I I really like 
that very specific vibe that it gives off and you know the, the sense of wonder that the music kind of had and you know it was very touching and moving at points and really kind of reels you in like the music was definitely one of my biggest takeaways from this i would love to kind of just sit down and listen to the soundtrack at some point just really kind of take it all in because I'm, I'm i was really impressed with that um and just you know the animation beats i thought were just really well done as well i i, I really like the art style again it, it feels kind of timeless in its way because this feels like it could have come out in 2022. I'm like, yeah, okay. It kind of fits in with other stuff that's coming out today. You know, it's very high quality and everything. But the fact this is 20 years old and still looks great. You know, some animation and everything. You know, you look at those really old Disney movies and stuff like that. Um, and like, well, this was clearly done a long time ago. You know, this animation is very dated, very old looking. Um, whereas this isn't, even though it's two decades old. Um, it, this honestly looks like it could have come out this year. And I think, stands up to you know a lot of other stuff that we're kind of enjoying it this present time in terms of movies and tv um so yeah the animation i just thought was gorgeous throughout and in particular i kind of made a specific note of the grass blowing in the wind um so it's kind of from a distance you see it because they're kind of there's like all these hills and everything as they first walk in to the main structure and it's just like a, a you know it's all like this these green hills and then it's like almost a yellowy green line you know it doesn't even necessarily look like grass but it kind of just wiggles along the hills it's obviously the effect of like grass blowing in the wind and it looks really great and really effective um and just kind of brings it to life in that kind of different way um i don't think it was all like entirely like 3d animated i think there were some sequences that looked like kind of like a 3d-esque model not that much i think it mainly stuck to like the 2d style um but yeah, I, I just thought, you know, a lot of this, I think, were still images. And then they've added things like that grass blowing effect um, just to bring it to life. And it, it worked so well. And then you combine that with the music, you know, it, it it really does, at least at first, you know, during the daytime anyway, kind of give you this sense of wonder and like tranquility in this place and like wow why, why was this place abandoned and you obviously you're probably thinking like why did they just leave this place then why is it so easy to access for god's sake you just walk through a tunnel and you, you're just in there that seems very dangerous um so i really liked all of that and i, I just thought right from the off you know the music the animation style it, it was really really beautiful and you know i i was kind of enraptured in what was going on right from the off um and I was like, right, how is this going to go wrong? Because obviously something needed to. Um, so, yeah, for me, like the opening was we started off very strong with the film. And I was like, OK, I, you know, I can already see the magic, I guess, in this and the labour of love that kind of went into this. Um, so that was really cool. And yeah, so they walk through the theme park. The parents see this buffet, you know, they follow the scent to it, start just stuffing their faces. Um, and Chihiro goes off, finds this bridge um, and then night falls, um, you know, the, st the sun starts to set. And that's when we realise, um, oh shit, sun, this is where it all goes horribly wrong. Because as, you know, night falls and the sun sets, um, we see that the entire park is now inhabited by spirits. Um, I don't know if they're always there or I don't know if they just arrive at this time of night every day. And then it's kind of their theme park and their kind of place where they hang out. Um, you know, I don't think we really know the wider story of the world like where are they when they're not at this place is this place like 
you know, somewhere that they go, like a holiday destination kind of thing. I'd assume so because of how the bathhouse works and everything. It's not just a place where some of them live, some of them are like tourists. It feels like it is very much a theme park for them as well. Like, how long has it been like this? Did it, this also happen while it was a theme park that humans just used in day-to-day life? You know, we don't really get those answers, but we don't need to get those answers, I think. And I, I quite like that we don't get them. Maybe they have been answered in, like, other media that's, like, expanded on this. Either way, um, you know, that's not what this story needs to tell us right now about how it got to this state and how it is this way, how this place fits into, like, the wider world. We kind of see glimpses of how it all works, obviously, because of the train and everything that they take later on in the film. So it's all connected by trains and stuff. And But, yeah, basically the spirit world kind of inhabits the park. Um, and I really like the, the very simplistic designs of some of the spirits, but then they also look quite different. And then some, they're just like, oh, right, like, here's a talking frog. Um, here are some frog people. Um, here's like this weird giant polar bear slash seal hybrid thing. The vast array of different kind of um, designs of creatures and humans in general. Um, not even humans, I guess, spirits, because they're all kind of shocked that Chihiro is a human. Like, how is she, how are you here? All that kind of stuff. Um, how long it took to design all of them, I have no idea. And I'm in absolute awe of it. It was phenomenal you know just the different range of all these different designs and characters and some of them you see for barely five seconds of screen time but they've all been really carefully crafted and designed and animated um and, and really gives a sense of like wow you know people really come from all over the place to you know here so clearly this is like the place to be it's like a, a great kind of tourist that's holiday destination um so i just love how that kind of was all brought to life like that um and yeah, so we have this, uh, again, probably one of my favourite sequences of the film is when like the boat arrives and it's like full of all the, these tourists kind of coming to the park for the night or whatever. Um, and they kind of all get off, you know, the lights on the boat as it's kind of approaching and Jihiro notices it coming over. Um, it's all really good because you kind of just really see how it's all transformed entirely at night and it becomes like a completely different looking place even though the structures and everything are exactly the same. It's now, you know, filled with life or I guess spirit life um, and Chihiro can't escape because the way that they've walked in is now kind of an island surrounded in water um, so it's all flooded now and they can't get out um, and Chihiro is also kind of becoming a spirit while this is happening um, I'm guessing it's because of like Yubabu is it Yubaba? Yubaba? Yubabu's uh, magic um, kind of you know, because they're kind of trapped in now this spirit world, they need, they're becoming a spirit slowly as well. Um, so she's kind of going a bit invisible and stuff. It's like, oh dear, this is not ideal. Um, and just before this, um, as it as the sun started to set, um, she met a boy on this bridge that she'd found. And he was like, no, you can't be here. You need to leave right now. And he tried to get her to escape. Obviously, it ended up being a bit too late because the sun set and all these spirits started appearing and everything. And she was trapped there. Um, so that was kind of the introduction to this mysterious boy, who we later learn his name's Haku, and obviously he's kind of a major player in the film, but that's how they first meet. Um, and Chihiro runs back, finds her parents have been transformed into pigs, um, because, you know, they're fat, greedy pigs who ate all the buffet um, without any permission or anything. So an ironic twist that they got turned into pigs. I quite like that. Um, you know, very much social commentary, which I think this film does have quite a bit of in terms of, like, capitalism, I would say, in general. Um, the greed of people, that's a, a very big thing as well, you know, with the parents turning into the pigs. Um, the greed of Yubabu, 
and um, how she wants to own all these different things. And, you know, when um, the no face kind of infiltrates the bathhouse and it can produce gold and suddenly, you know, all the people that work there are desperate and like, give me the gold and we'll, we'll, we'll pamper you, we'll do all this stuff for you. And their greed kind of causes you know the no face to kind of go off the rails and to the point where it starts eating some of the stuff um and all of that but we can talk about that but there's you know big themes like that that kind of run throughout which i really enjoyed a bit of i guess environmentalism as well and um you know pollution commentary with um the well i think it's called a stink spirit is what they said it was we can talk about that a bit later as well um but actually you know you remove all the dirt and the grime from the you know, in fact, it's been polluted and it's actually a river spirit it reveals to be um, rather than a stink spirit. Um, so, you know, commentary on rivers being polluted and, you know, it's taking like the soul away from them almost. Um, and the right and sensible and good thing to do and you'll be rewarded for it is to clean the stink away from the river, if you will. Um, and, you know, help fight back against pollution and clean the ocean, stuff like that. So I, I liked that they had little social commentaries in there as well. Um, they weren't necessarily like the story, but it's clear what those messages were. I, I thought that was really well done, really well handled, actually. Um, so there's a lot of kind of themes like that in the run through that I thought were done very well. They're kind of the main ones that I got anyway. Um, so yeah, we had everything with that. Jihiro's parents are pigs. She's becoming a spirit. Um, there were, you know, other spirits everywhere now. And she's like, what the hell is going on here? She can't escape. Um, and then Haku comes back, um, finds her and gives her some, some of the food from, you know, that place, um, because that will stop her from going all spirity, which I guess makes sense. Um, so she kind of just eats some of the food there. Um, that kind of grounds her back into like her mortal form, I guess her physical form, um, which I liked. And then he kind of leads her off because he, you know. He instantly has this instinct to protect her, which I like, because it's kind of foreshadowing the fact that he has protected her in the past, in a way. Um, you know, and that's something that kind of comes a bit later on. And then, um, as Chihiro's being led away by Haku, because um, he clearly, you know, it's very clear he's been here for a while. He knows the system. He knows what's going on. He knows what exploits he can kind of carry out. So he's like, you know, don't worry, I'll keep you safe. I have this plan. Off they go. Um, and rather kind of, you know, we're seeing a bit more of this world through Chihiro's eyes now and what, you know, on earth is going on now it's been transformed. There is kind of like this bird of prey kind of following overhead, like circling everything, kind of like keeping an eye on everything. Um, and it has this old lady's face. And I like the later reveal that it's actually um, Yubabu. I'm scared I've written down her name wrong now. Yubabu. Hmm. So I've written Yubaba there. Uh, I mean, I, you know who I mean. The, you know, the head of the bathhouse. Um, so, um, yeah, it's actually her face. And I like that reveal. You know, it's like she's watching over everyone. I don't know if that is actually her. I don't think it is like a separate entity. But obviously, it's like th through her eyes. It's her eyes and ears, essentially, as this kind of form of a bird of prey. So the inventiveness of the creatures and all the different designs, um, I thought, were really, really cool. Haku tries to sneak chihiro in to the building um and she needs to hold her breath to do it um to kind of convince people that she's not human i guess um but then you know it doesn't quite work out because it takes so long and i think she's kind of shocked by what one of the creatures looks like and she's like <gasps> and then everyone's like oh my god it's a human 
um, eat her or whatever. And I think some of the frog people went to eat her, which is disturbing. Um, then Haki's like, well, shit, never mind. Plan B. And he, he like, sends her away down this kind of, these steps, I think. And he's like, find Kamaji and get him to give you a job here. You know, insist upon it. Because then I guess it would mean she has a place here. People aren't going to hunt her down, whatever. Because um, she suddenly belongs here. And, you know, it's kind of the only way that she can stick around to, you know, keep an eye on her parents and ultimately try and save them and transform them back. Um, so she makes her way down to Kamaji who is kind of picture Dr. Eggman having a, a love child with a spider. And that's kind of Kamaji. Um, you know, very much like a Dr. Eggman-y kind of face, but he has loads of these extra arms. And he's basically in charge of, you know, he lives right at the bottom of the bathhouse, I assume. And he's in charge of keeping the fires burning and the coals burning. Um, him and these little creatures, like little soot creatures, who are kind of throwing all the coal and stuff into um, the burners. So he's basically in charge of heating all the baths for the customers in the bathhouse and make, you know, keeping up with the demand for them. Um, so, you know, again, a very kind of unique kind of concept to set it in a bathhouse in the first place. But then they go even wackier with it with people like um, Kamaji. And they kind of initially, what I like, you know, again, they really swap out your expectations and really kind of you know, smash them to pieces, basically, because they make the parents the one who are keen to explore the theme park rather than the kid. Now, here, I think, initially, I was like, oh, this guy's going to be dodgy, this guy's going to be an arsehole, um, this Kamaji. And he kind of is, in a way. Um, he's very dismissive. He doesn't want to give um, Chihiro a job. And Haku's kind of warns him, like, you know, he's going to try and trick you into not having a job and send you away or whatever. Um, to be fair, Chihiro gives up pretty damn quick, even though... Haku told her to be insistent. Um, she isn't really. And he's like, oh, you know, just go to Yubabu and um, you'll get a, a job with her. Um, so that's kind of how that all goes down. Um, and it's through that we meet Lynn, who is a woman who works at the bathhouse as well. Um, she's one of the workers there, one of the many workers there. Um, Kamaji sends... Um, Lin off and she, he basically tells Lin to take Chihiro to Yubabu um, I'm so desperately nervous that I've got a new Babu wrong now and that's not how you say it but we're rolling with it I'm not I'm not recording this again I've already been recording for 46 minutes which is insane um, but yeah Lin kind of then very reluctantly again she seems to not really like what's going on that much and you know maybe risking her job or whatever um, no one seems that keen on it um, and yeah, so Lin has to very reluctantly take Chihiro up to Yubabu. Um, and it's then that really hit me, like, this clear history that's, you know, we haven't seen it, but it's very well established, like, they've been doing this for a long time. This bathhouse has been running for a long time. Everyone has this system. They have this economy, you know, this little system of, you know... They have like these little cards that they send down to Kamaji so he knows exactly what like what ingredients need to be put into the bath and stuff like that and um, so he can keep up with everything you know little kind of things like that a little different kind of currency system and everything it's clearly very well thought out but not to the extent like we're telling you exactly how all this works and that like, kind of forcing that dialogue in it's just like this is how it is and you know they throw you into the deep end they don't really explain the world but you still get a sense of how it works um, rather than, you know, very forced dialogue that 
you know, she overhears them kind of explaining this is how this works and how this works. And, you know, that wouldn't very organically tell us the information. They just kind of show it rather than tell it, which I think is a really great way of doing it. Um, especially something so so reliant on its visuals as Spirited Away seems to be. Um, because, you know, it's kind of such a big part of the appeal of them, I think, is how wonderful they look. Um, so I really like that they do show and not tell and stuff like this. And they know what we need to know and make sure that we do know that information about characters, about the world. But a lot of it is just something you can infer or something you can guess for yourself and fill in the gaps, which I really do like. It just makes it feel more real and lived in the whole world that we've just been introduced to rather than feeling like, you know, everything's being explained to us because it's actually, you know, we're actually watching a film rather than we're just, you know, invading this world that's actually been going for years and years and we're only just now a part of it. That's what it feels like. And I think that's, you know, really brilliantly done. Um, so, yes, we have that. Uh, Lin and Chihiro ride up an elevator to Yubabu, um, who obviously is the top dog and um, works at the very top of the bathhouse. Um, and it's during this, you know, we see a few more different creatures and everything. And, um, you know, people are very intrigued by, you know, having a human about. And we see, like, these frog people and all the different creatures, you know, some of the customers there um, versus the people who work there. It's all really cool and kind of world building and, you know, you could probably just pause a single frame of the film and find loads of different things in the background that aren't attention isn't drawn to it, but they're still really lovingly rendered. You know, that's really interesting. I'd love to rewatch it to kind of get, you know, pay attention to the background when I'm rewatching the film to kind of see little things that I might have missed that might add to the world building, or it might just be like a funny little gag in the background that I missed. Stuff like that. Um, maybe a creature that is never prominent in the film, but there is one there in the background. You know, oh, I'd never noticed that kind of creature was here before. Um, so yeah, that kind of stuff I just kind of eat up and it, it's done superbly. That's when you kind of meet Yubaba, who, um, you know, she's very kind of much about her work, it would seem. Um, and she doesn't seem particularly pleasant. Um, she definitely, she openly mocks um, Chihiro and, you know, Chihiro is trying to again insist on, please let, let me work here, let me work here. Um, and Yubabu's having absolutely none of it. She's like, absolutely not, child, go away. Um, you know, she thinks she has much more important things to do. Um, you know, we see her, like, examining all the, these diamonds and rubies that she's got. So clearly, again, greed is kind of a, a big part of the film. And, you know, she's one of the greediest of all. We get the sense that she's this very magical person. And, you know, she's kind of responsible for turning Chihiro's parents into the pigs. And, you know, she's kind of running all of this from the bathhouse and stuff. Um, she's clearly kind of the big person in power of this whole world. Um, and then the one thing that kind of breaks that image of her, that she kind of presents herself, the mask she presents herself wearing is like this uncaring, unbothered ruler of the bathhouse almost is um, a giant baby. And she just kind of completely goes all gooey eyed and, you know, kind of a bit, self-conscious about it almost being seen to care about something i think she has a reputation to uphold about she doesn't care but she clearly really really cares for her child um and she's like no just you know mummy will be there soon just go back to sleep because it was like started crying and everything um so yeah we can we can talk about the baby i guess in a bit more detail because that does come back in a uh very significant way in the second half of the film this child of hers um but again the design of yubabu is really cool you know she's got like this 
really large head, exaggerated head, and, you know, in terms of how, you know, her body is formed and everything, you know, she's very different in her silhouette to a lot of the other characters in the film. So, you know, again, it's some really, really interesting kind of character designs and everyone feels just so unique. Um, I mean, apart from when we then meet her sister, who looks exactly the same, even to the clothes, I think it's exactly the same and everything. Um, but I think that even then that's commentary, I think, on the fact that those two are actually kind of estranged sisters. But I think they're actually more alike than they like to admit, which is why they actually look the same. And I think it's interesting that they're so different, even though they're kind of like twins, I guess. Um, so, yeah, um, that's her in introduction to her. And I must say, I think my favourite voice um, performance in the film is the actress who plays Yubabu. I think she's fantastic. Um, the actress who played her... Um, Mari Natsuki I think is her name again sorry if I've absolutely butchered that but I thought it was a fantastic performance from them um, you know just how crazy they let her go and you know some of the really out there dialogue she gets um, but she also has these you know very subdued moments again and there's a lot of layers to her performance like she's quite vulnerable when it comes to her baby and you know she's very motherly and gentle and then with everyone else She'd, like, scream the place down to tell you off. Um, so I thought it was a really great performance from the actress who played Yubabu. Um, definitely the kind of highlight for me in terms of performances in the film. Um, I mean, everyone was really great, but I think it helps when a character like Yubabu is who gets to play. I think it's just a, a very interesting kind of character because um, she's very much, I think, the villain of the film. Um, but also you enjoy seeing her. And you don't always necessarily want her not to succeed, because there are a few moments of goodness in there, um, like when the parent stink, stink spirit arrives, even though it's actually a river spirit. Um, you know, that whole sequence, you know, she kind of really gets involved in things and, you know, she has a really positive kind of interaction with Chihiro at the end of all that. Um, so there are some moments of good in there, which I think is why maybe she's not as dissimilar to her sister as you might think, and that's why they look the same and everything. Um, or for all I know, it just save budget if they had two characters look the same I don't know um, but yeah anyway we were introduced to them um, and then ultimately I think she just gets fed up with Chihiro constantly like begging for a job she's like fine shut up I'll give you a job um, and then she signs you know she gets a contract for her together Chihiro signs it um, and that's when we kind of again just get a glimpse very organically of how this world works how the currency in this world works how the power system in the bathhouse in particular is working with Yubabu um, because she kind of steals part of her name and like renames her Sen. She's like, your name's Sen now. Um, she's kind of like, I own your name almost. And that's kind of her power over people. She likes to, she knows people's names and like steals people's names and that's kind of her power over them. So she can kind of, you know, use that against them basically. Um, and over time people forget what their real names were. So then they can never leave this world so she's kind of, you know, they're then trapped in this capitalist society that she seems to have built. Um, so, yeah, Chihiro is now renamed Sen. Um, and that's when Hatu comes back in, um, who is kind of Yubabu's right-hand man, I guess, as it, we kind of learn. Um, and, yeah, she's like, sends her off with Haku. Like, like, get her to work. And then Haku then takes her back to Lin. Um, you know, because Chihiro is basically going to be helping Lin, like, clean all the baths and you know do all the labor really the the hard labor in the bathhouse so that's all of that 
Um, Lin then shows Sen to like, this is where you're going to be sleeping, stuff like that. And they all sleep like basically right next to each other, really close quarters. So again, the treatment of the staff isn't brilliant. And it is interesting, like the fact that they just stay there all the time in this world. The workers just seem to always stay there, um, even during the day, even though, you know, before it seemed seemingly abandoned, but everyone was actually inside the bathhouse if they worked there. And who knows if there are any other people who are there all the time elsewhere that the parents and, you know, Chihiro just didn't see before night fell. Um, whereas we also see we get a glimpse that Yubabu actually leaves the place during the day and then comes back at night when it's time for work so God knows where she might go maybe to, you know, mock her sister or whatever, but she obviously goes somewhere so again, I just like how we see how this world works and how some people are very much mistreated you know, the lower level workers and stuff aren't really thought of too you know, fondly I guess, or equally um, so it's actually, you know, it's quite deep, really, for a, a film like this. I, I really wasn't expecting it to kind of, you know, take the turn that it did. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect again because I didn't know the plot. But, you know, I thought, oh, it's going to be a nice kind of jolly, maybe, exploration of this, you know, spirit-filled park. But then, you know, the focus very much goes onto the bathhouse, and that is ultimately the story that they tell. And then during the night, Haku um, appears to Sen, you know, obviously... Chihiro, we're going to be calling her Sen for the time being, because um, that's her new name. Um, he kind of, you know, whispers to her in, in the middle of the night, which again sounds quite creepy. Um, he's like, you know, meet me at the bridge um, and I'll let you see your parents, basically. So um, they then meet up at the bridge a bit later on um, and he shows her her parents, you know, they're still pigs um, and they kind of get a bit more of like what on earth is going on here you know Haku can then finally start to explain to Sen a bit of what's going on um and he kind of tells her that Yubabu steals names to have power over them um and that you know he he had long since forgotten his name so he can never leave this place um I think we get a few details about how he just turned up one day much like Chihiro slash Sen did I think Kamaji kind of tells us a bit about that um and that um, Haku was very keen to kind of explore like magic and stuff like that and be kind of become a sorcerer which Yubabu is very much she can do that kind of stuff you know she can transform people into pigs and all of that kind of thing she's a very powerful person no wonder she's in charge of everything here um, so yeah Haku kind of really explains all of that to Sen um, and at the start of the film when they're kind of you know driving off um, you know Chihiro and her parents um, Chihiro has a bouquet of flowers that she was given, like a farewell bouquet and it was like, you know, has a card and like, to Chihiro, good luck on your new adventure, stuff like that you know, we'll miss you, everything like that um, Haku kind of has that with him and gives that to her because it's got her name on it it's got Chihiro on it, her actual name um, to ensure that she never forgets it, so she has that and he's like, you know, names have power here, don't show that to just anyone, you know, don't let people know your real name because they can have power over you then um and because, you know, he had long since forgotten what his natural name was, you know, he doesn't want that to happen to her. So, you know, he has this instinct of protectiveness over her. Um, and, yeah, so he gives her that card so she never forgets her name. Um, and it's at this point, I'd kind of foreseen this coming for, like, 50 minutes because I was like, she is dealing with this really well. She's had a really shit day, um, really shit time. You know, she didn't want to move in the first place. And now this has all happened, you know. God, just you want to stay at home, didn't you? Um, and it's at this moment, um, she just bursts into tears. 
completely breaks down. And I was like, that feels so right to have happened right now. Because I was thinking like, she's going to really snap at some point. She's going to break. And I, I was just thinking that to myself as this was going on. Because I was like, this is a lot to kind of pour on her. Um, you know, it's a lot of, for us watching, more like the person that this is actually happening to. Um, so it felt so, so real and so, so perfect for a character, for anyone who's going through that situation, for her to just choose that moment to break down. Because Haku is the one person that she'd met since it all kind of started that she actually trusted. Uh, because there was a moment where he's like, I need to leave and, you know, go and find um, Kamaji. I'll be back. And she's like, no, no, don't leave me. You know, she instantly trusted him. And for a lot of the film, I was like, why are they kind of like, they really seem to be forcing this pairing almost of these two. And I, I don't really buy into this connection, but then there's a, a reveal a bit later on that kind of sees why they have this instinct to kind of rely and trust each other and look after each other. Um, so it kind of made sense ultimately. But at the time I was like, where is this guy? This is strange. Um, but yeah, she just completely breaks down and he kind of comforts her. He gives her some food, you know, and he's very understanding. Like, yeah, you know, you, you've, ha you've had a rough time of it. And I was like, well, you know, you're very much saying what the audience is thinking there. So that's something that we can relate to him through and, you know, like Haku for. Um, so that just felt like a really real character moment in what has been a very outlandish, over-the-top, like crazy film this far with like frog people and like this, you know, parents turning into pigs and their spirits invading this abandoned theme park. And then, you know, it, it, it still overwhelms this, you know, very young child. I don't know exactly how young she is, but she's very young. Um, you know, and she has that moment where she's like, this is too much and just breaks down. And I, I really liked that moment, which sounds horrible, um, but it just felt so real and human. And I love that you have moments like that in this. And the fact that the film is saying, you know, it's okay to be overwhelmed and to feel awful about this situation that you're in. Um, I really like that they actually showed, you know, someone break down like that and be very open in that with someone and for the person that they're with to be very understanding um you know so that was really cool that, that was actually one of my favorite parts of the film one of my favorite moments i thought that was done really really well a great character moment for chihiro slash sen um so that was great um and then it's during this sequence that we see um well i think it was just before she met up with haku at the bridge again and he kind of then showed her her parents i think she saw this like spirit with like this like is it basically just like this black silhouette with like a white mask on seemingly um it was just kind of there um and um it seemed to be like just following her around um and it was during this point where you know han ha han who's that um maybe that's their ship name haku and sen kind of part ways sen goes back to work and this kind of spirit thing starts following sen um, and then she goes and falls asleep. Um, well, she doesn't actually go back to her bed and falls asleep. She actually goes back to Kamaji's room and falls asleep. Um, which I really liked because we have a nice moment with Kamaji then again. I thought at this point, uh, you know, he's going to be an arsehole, this character. But then I think when Lin first shows up, I think he then covers for Sen, I think, or, you know, Chihiro. Um, and then here, he actually notices that she's fallen asleep because he wakes up and notices that she's asleep um, and then puts a blanket over her. And I was like, that's really wholesome and sweet. So he's actually a really nice guy. Um, and, you know, he he's not... We see, you know, um, Yubabu is very much presented with, like, having this mask on and, 
you know, very cold to a lot of things, very cold and calculating. And some other characters seem to be that way, like Kamaji and Lin, but we, we kind of see that Yubabu just kind of is like that, but these guys aren't. Um, I think that's kind of how they've learned to survive in this kind of system of capitalism that Yubabu has kind of created. But we see that they've still held on to, you know, their emotions and their kind of empathy and sympathy for people. So they're actually still, you know, good people at heart. And a, a little moment like that I thought was really nice to kind of share that with Kamaji. Um, and then Sena gets on with her work the next day, you know, just doing what she needs to do, um, trying to, you know, just keep her work going. And then this spirit that had been following her, she assumes it's a customer and it's just, because it starts raining outside, it's just stood outside and it's just in the rain. So she's like, oh, you know, a customer, I'll let you in from the rain and like leaves the door open for it. So it comes in and she goes on and continues with work, thinking nothing of it. And this is kind of when the plot properly gets going, I think, with the film. We've had all the setup, we've had all the character building and the world building. Basically, all the main characters at this point have now been introduced that we're going to be focusing on. Um, this is where it gets very, very wacky and weird. Um, so, yeah, that comes in, um, that spirit. Um, and we kind of see it, it's clearly had this kind of attachment to her. And I guess she's shown it some kindness and it probably hasn't experienced that. So it kind of follows her around and we see it kind of help her out with her job. Um, you know, she needs to get some of these, like, what, what even are they? I guess these, like, little cards um, that dictate, like, you can use soap to with this bath or whatever. Um, and the, the guy in charge of that refuses to give her any. Um, so this creature, you know, this spirit that's been following her and, you know, had, had, she'd shown it some kindness, he nicks loads of them. And just gives it to her, like, there you go, and helps her out of her job and stuff like that. So, you know, they seem to be getting along. She's got a friend in there. Lovely. Um, and then Yubabu, we cut back to her, um, and she's in her office. She senses something's coming in the cover of Rainfall. Um, and I think my favourite imagery in the entire film is actually her phone. Um, when she's, like, contacting other people in the bathhouse. It's literally like a skull. Um, but when someone's talking on the other end to her, like the skull's just talking. So it's like the jaw's moving up and down as they're talking. I thought that was just a really cool bit of imagery. And I really like that. There's lots of different bits of imagery in it. And it shouldn't really work cohesively because there's so many different kind of wacky, almost conflicting ideas, but it still feels so cohesive. I think that's down to just the art style being as good as it is. And, you know, it, it, it feels like a very kind of cobbled together world. And it probably is because they've just had to build this system up over God knows how long. Um, and it, it just really works. Um, so yeah, um, she's kind of senses an intruder. She's talking on the phone with people. Um, and this intruder is actually apparently a stink spirit, which we've already talked about earlier. Uh, so it's basically, imagine like a muck, a muck from Pokemon, um, just this pile of sludge and it kind of comes in. Clearly it wants a bath. It wants to get clean. Um, and everyone's like, oh shit, this is going to be brutal. This is going to be messy. This is going to be really hard work to kind of get this thing clean. So everyone kind of descends into panic over this stink spirit. Um, and I, I like the hint when Yubabu kind of comes down to kind of see it because she senses this thing coming because it's obviously a, a very difficult client to work on, I guess. Um, she's kind of surprised when she sees, oh, it's a stink spirit. I didn't sense that. That's strange. And it's kind of foreshadowing that it's not actually a stink spirit. Um, and then with these like extra tag things like that represent like you can use this soap, etc. that the spirit had stolen for Sen, Sen uses all of those um, and that helps her kind of clean this stink spirit and kind of get all the dirt off of it. Um, 
as this is happening and as it's being cleaned and everything, Yubabu realizes like, oh, I have a hunch now. This isn't a stink spirit after all. I was wrong. Um, well, you know, she, like she sensed that she was surprised that it was a stink spirit, and now she realizes why um, because it's not actually one. And then she kind of, you know, in a, a rare moment when she's actually kind of a good boss, I guess she rallies everyone together. She gets everyone to work together because um, she sees something like, well, Sen sees something sticking out of the spirit. And that gives Yubabu this inkling as to what it is. Um, and so they attach a rope to it or whatever. And she gets every, all the workers to ride together to like keep pulling. So eventually, you know, all the dirt's being washed off. And then they pull. And it's like a bicycle, I think, that they pull out of this thing. And then more and more like junk is getting pulled out of it. Um, so eventually, you know, all that junk's pulled off. All of the dirt and grime's washed away. Um, and we see that it's actually um, a river spirit, which is like a dragon-like looking creature. Um, and it's, yeah, basically the spirit of a river, um, which I, I'm guessing ties into like maybe some Japanese lore and stuff that I'm not too familiar with. But, you know, they kind of treat it like it's just a, a river spirit. It's just a thing that exists in this world, um, which maybe might just be the case. Um, so, um, yeah their social commentary there on, you know, destroying the beauty of like this river spirit with pollution and muck and grime and people just throwing shit away, um, you know, and not discarding of it properly, just polluting it. So I like that bit of social commentary with that. Um, and the river spirit thanks Sen for, you know, helping it get clean by giving her this, like, this little brown pellet thing. Um, I don't know if it's poo. It might be poo. Um, but she kind of, thanks, take this. I guess it kind of senses that she might need it at some point. Um, so she's got that now. And, um, again, Yubabu is very, very pleased with Sen. She's like, oh, well done, you know, this is such a good job and everything. She like hugs her and everything. So it's like, oh, she's being one round and maybe everything's going to be okay. Um, after all, um, you know, a rare moment of her being actual a good boss and kind to someone and openly kind to someone as well. That isn't her kid. Um, so, you know, all's well that ends well for that, I guess. Um, and then that night, you know, everyone's gone back to bed again and the spirit, you know, the, with the mask that had been helping sent out during the day and got her the tags and stuff. Um, the spirit kind of appears to this like frog creature, one of the frogs, it actually, it just, is a talking frog. Um, that's kind of sneaking in, I think to kind of get some, maybe some treasure out or something, I think from what was left over from cleaning the spirit. Um, and then this spirit um, gives it some gold. It, it can just form gold. It can just make it. Um, so obviously the frog's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Give me all the gold, please. And again, thinking it's a customer that's just stayed a bit too late. Um, so, you know, the frog is lured closer to this spirit thing, um, you know, with the promise of gold. And the spirit just eats the frog, which <laughs> was the most shocking moment, I think, of the entire film for me. And I was like, oh shit. Because, you know, it thinks it's like this sweet, innocent creature that's just helping Sen out with her work. Um, and then it's like luring this thing in and eating it. Um, and then you kind of see it get a bit bigger and kind of morph its form a bit. And it, you kind of see it's kind of taken on almost like a frog-like form with like legs and stuff. Because it's like, that's what it's eaten. And I think it then like uses its voice as well when we then hear it speak. Because it hadn't really spoken up until this point properly. Um, so yeah, that was going on. And... Um, then while Sen's asleep during this night, um, more and more people kind of discover this spirit now that's eating the frog. Um, and it's like, keeps making all this gold to like pay all the workers. So they keep like pampering it, feeding it more and more of 
anything basically all the food it can get so it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger than like this massive creature now just being completely you know gluttonized again greed kind of coming into play there people's greed for you know the gold that this thing can produce and the actual creature itself um it's kind of greed for you know give me more food please sends quite late waking up i think because everyone's kind of been told about this creature and like oh you can get some gold if you help out this thing so they've all gone to deal with that sen didn't get woken up i guess um so she wakes up um earlier in the film i can't remember exactly when it was um she spotted like uh, another dragon you know very much like a, a river spirit kind of type dragon flying in the sky it's just like it was leaving the place it was just going off somewhere she saw that earlier she sees it again now when she wakes up it's being attacked by like this group of like paper birds i think i think there is like a proper name for them i don't know if i've written it down but they're, they kind of resemble birds but actually just like little paper people um you know I, i've seen them about in like japanese culture and stuff so I, you know they're, they're very much kind of a symbolic thing that i wish i knew the proper meaning of um but they're kind of like attacking this creature and everything um and um sen recognizes that it's a dragon that she's seen earlier and she also then just has this kind of connection to it, i guess in this vision and she realizes that this is actually haku and Haku can kind of transform into this dragon thing. Um, and it's just like her instinct, like, this is Haku. I just, I can sense that it's him. And again, I'm like, okay, a bit weird, but I'll go with it. But we kind of see it a bit later on why she can sense that. Um, so yeah, it's be, being attacked by these kind of paper bird things. Um, and eventually I think it kind of crashes into Yubaba's office, I think. Something like that. But, you know, it... Haku, the dragon, has been pretty beaten up by these things and it kind of crashes and Sen kind of goes to um, aid him. Like Her instinct is to try and help him and save him, so she kind of goes to try and deal with that. Uh, she runs into the spirit again that's been eating everything and stuff, you know, the one that had helped her out. She's like, oh, sorry, you know, I don't have time, I'm busy, and like, just kind of leaves it in the lurch, basically. Um, and I think that kind of pisses the creature off and it eats another two workers. And at this point, everyone's like, oh shit, it just ate two of our workers. And it's all panic. And now they're scared of this thing rather than being like, gold, please, money, please. Um, so they deal with all that, basically, and it all goes horribly wrong. Um, and yeah, so Sen then follows, yeah, Haku's crashed into Yubabu's office. Um, Sen turns up there and finds him there. Then I think Yubaba kind of appears because it's getting close to nightfall again. So she's coming, Yubaba's coming back for you know work um and i think that forces sen to go and hide um and it's during this she's caught up with this spirit that had eaten the frog and i was eating workers um and it's called a no face that's when we actually learn it's called a no face um because i think the mask is actually you know it's like a false face basically and then it's mouth actually underneath it so people think like it's mouth here but it's actually there and rom, it eats you um, but Yubabi doesn't really seem to care about this no-face thing. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, you know, I'm going to go check on my kid now. Um, and she wants to go and check on her giant baby friend, which Sen has actually hidden in, like, a bundle of toys, I think. And, her, her, you know, Yubabi's kid's actually in this bundle of toys. And um, it, it threatens her, which, again, was quite the thing. It's like, oh, right. Um, she's like, you're going to play with me, or I cry and scream, and then Yubabi catches you kind of you know breaking into her office um and sends like bitch please bye um i think she like scares it with some blood or something because she got cut by one of the paper thing something like that um, or it's haku's blood i think she gets on her um and that kind of scares the baby 
And during this, um, one of the paper birds that was attacking Haku um, attached itself to um, Sen's back and she didn't realise. Now this thing kind of comes back, you know, it kind of flies off of her and transforms. Um, and it turns out to be a vision of Yubabu's sister, whose name is Zaniba. Um, she's kind of like a twin sister, basically, and like another witch, I guess. Um, she wants Haku dead because Haku was sent by Yubabu to steal a seal from her, which he had done. So then she kind of, you know, fights back by sending all these paper bird things after the midnight transformed into one herself to kind of get for him, I guess. Because um, Yubabu and Zaniba do not get along. Um, and I don't mean a seal as in, you know, those kind of animals. That was a weird impression. Um, can't believe I just did that. Um, you know, as in like a seal, you like stamp on some ink or, you know, you stamp on a wax seal for an envelope, that kind of seal, rather than the animal. Um, so Yubabu sent Haku, you know, as a dragon to kind of steal that from her for whatever reason, because it's kind of got like a spell in it, I think. Um, and, you know, she wants Haku dead because of that. Um, and then Haku the dragon wakes up um, and destroys the piece of paper that Zaniba had kind of inhabited. So then the, the kind of form of her vanishes and that gets rid of her for now because um, it wasn't actually her physically there. She's somewhere else. Haku's still very, very badly injured. Um, Sen tries to kind of wake him up and comfort him and stuff. Um, and also during this section, just before she was sent packing, Zaniba, she turned the baby into, I think, like a mouse kind of thing. Like a mouse or a hamster kind of creature. Um, so it's just like that now because the baby was a bit weird and annoying. She was like, ha ha ha, because again, they're kind of magic, these two sisters. Um, and she turned the bird that kind of had Yubabu's face, she turned that into like a little kind of bird creature, I guess, that kind of flies around and like, it always has like the, the mouse creature baby thing. It like, just keeps its grip on it and like flies around, like carrying it around, which is quite wholesome in a way. Um, and then Yubabu, in her office, she has these like three green heads. Kind of, they're just there for vibes, I guess. And they just take the piss out of um, Chihiro Shnas Sen a bit earlier in the film. She transforms all three of them into, you know, so they look like the baby, look like the kid. Um, when in reality, the kid's now been turned into this mouse. Um, and Haku kind of falls down a shaft um, into Kamaji's room and that's, and drags. Um, Sen, the baby as a mouse thing, and, you know, the bird creature thing. Um, they all go tumbling down together into that room. Sen then gives Kamaji half of the pellet that she was given by the river spirit, um, hoping that it will heal it somehow. She just kind of senses that she needs to use it, I guess. Um, and that makes Haku spit up um, this weird... I can't exactly remember what the creature was now. It's not this weird, like, black slug creature-y thing. Um, it was gross, whatever. Um, whatever it was. Um, and she like stamps on that and kills whatever that was. She assumes um, it was whatever was kind of inside him, like still hurting him um, and still like doing damage to him. She's like, hopefully that's healed him now. Um, and um, he also coughs up along with that weird creature parasite thing that she kills. Um, he spits up the seal that he stole from the sister. So it's then... Sen decides to um, 
return to the sister, find the sister, um, in like a swamp area where she lives or something, um, and return the seal, hoping that she'll kind of forgive Haku and maybe even heal him. Because, you know, she again, she, she has this instinct to protect him and heal him just as he has towards her. Um, so she's kind of hoping, you know, that's going to be what can happen. Um, and Kamaji actually has, I think it's like six or so train tickets. Um, it's a one-way trip normally. Um, and he gives them to Sen so she can go and complete her quest. So Kamaji actually really comes through. MVP of the movie, honestly. Um, so, yeah. Because... There is kind of... I think when Sen, at the time, she was Chihiro, she arrives at the first time when she's, like, exploring the um, park. I think she sees, like, a train kind of run quite far deep below her. Because it's all flooded and stuff now, it, it's actually on the surface. And the train's kind of going along the surface of the water. Um, so she can now kind of catch the train, basically. If she can swim to the station, she can then get on this train and go and find Saniba, the sister. Um, so she gets those tickets... Um, and on their way to kind of kind of go and get the train, um, Sen runs into the no-face creature again, and, you know, it's causing all sorts of havoc. Um, it's doing all sorts of stuff, to the point where now um, Yubabu's even concerned about it. Like, we need to do something, because it, it won't speak to anyone but Sen. It just wants Sen. Um, I guess it has this connection to it, because it kind of you know, assumes they're friends and everything. And it, it, it seems like a very lonely creature, which is quite sad, really. Um, so it's kind of very much... I guess, projected onto Sen. Kind of like a baby chick. Like, oh, first thing it sees, you're my mother. I think it's kind of done that in a way. Um, just a, a bit too much of a, like, oh, calm down, you know. We've only just met and you're calling us best friends. So, like, let's, let's pipe down. Um, that kind of energy. Um, and to kind of calm it down a bit. Because, it, it, again, Sen seems to have a real instinct about people. And I think instinct's kind of an, another big part of the film, like, character's instincts and how far that can carry you um she senses like greed has corrupted this no-face creature like being in this place has corrupted it i've let it in and kind of caused this if it wasn't here i think it would learn the error of its ways and actually be kind of a nice gentle creature again so she feeds it the other half of the pellet thing and it throws up everything that's eaten including like the frog and the, the workers you know they're still alive and full because it kind of swallowed them whole and ate them so they're all alive and they're fine um so it throws up all of that stuff that whatever it eaten during the night um, and goes back to like its normal size, how it used to look. Still following Sen out at this point after it's thrown everything up. Um, Lin takes um, Sen to the train station, kind of swims her over and, like at this little barrel thing. No face is still following. Um, and then they catch the train. And there's a really great moment there for Lin. Who I kind of wish we'd seen more of in the film, honestly. I, I really liked Lin. I wish we'd gotten more of her. But she has a great moment. I think she says it to No Face. And she's like, you know, if you hurt that girl, there'll be hell to pay or whatever. She's like, I'll, I will kick your ass. Um, and it's a really nice moment that, you know, in such a short space of time, she's also kind of really come to like Sen as well and care for her, much as um, Kamaji has. Um, so again, instincts that people have, I guess, are overcoming, you know, their doubts. So I really enjoyed that. So that was a great moment for um, Lin. Um, and at this point... Um, they get on the train and just the imagery this is some of my favorite imagery in the film as well there's like this whole flooded world now that we see and it's only connected these like islands in the whole flooded world very legend of zelda wind waker vibes um it's only connected by like the, the train tracks and stuff 
Um, so they get on the train to try and find Zeniba, the sister. Um, and just the imagery of like them going on this train journey, it's so, so good. I think it's like the most beautiful sequence of the film. Kind of seeing you know, more of the wider world outside of the bathhouse. You're kind of seeing how this world kind of all fits together now and why, like, Yubaba would have to fly to get back to the work if she lives somewhere else and everything. Um, so the imagery there is beautiful. I loved all of that. It was a really lovely sequence. Um, Haku transforms back into, like, his human form because he's feeling a bit better. And he asks, where, you know, where Sen is. That is his instinct as soon as he wakes up, like, where's Sen? You know, getting that instinct to protect her. Um, and kind of Kamaji, I guess, fills him in. He then kind of confronts Yubaba, um, Yubabu, Ubidu. <laughs> I want to be like Yubaba. And um, prior to this, um, you know, as Sen dealt with the no-face and kind of gave it the pellet and stuff, um, you, we see that Yubabu um, didn't recognise that, you know, it wasn't actually her baby. It, it was these transformed heads. She didn't even noticed that because she was so kind of preoccupied with her business, I guess. So the little mouse creature that is now actually, was actually her kid is a bit sad because he's like, she completely dismisses that creature. She's like, no, I don't recognise what that thing is. So, you know, she's a bit too preoccupied with her business and money and everything to recognise, you know, this thing isn't actually her baby. And then um, Sen, you know, Haku goes to Yubaba and tells her, you know, your baby's gone, that's not your kid. And, and, like, the spell breaks and everything on it. She kind of makes it transform back into the heads. She realises, like, my kid's gone. And it's, like, we've it's been established that's, like, the only thing, you know, she cares about potentially more than her business. But the business can also blind her to that. Um, so, yeah, her, you know, she kind of then freaks out that her kid's gone. She's surprised that Haku is speaking to her like this and really being quite confrontational with her because he's never been like that with her before now. Um, and Haku basically offers, like, I will go and get your kid back, bring them back to you, if you promise um, that you release Sen and her parents when we get back. You let them go and let them leave this place. Um, and she's like, fine, if they can pass, like, one more test or something like that. Um, and it's during this bit where Yubabu kind of realises her kid's gone. She's, like, frantically searching for it. I think it's my favourite sound effect in the entire movie. And I had already noticed it at this point. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was quite satisfying to listen to. But there's a lot of it here as well. Um, just the sound of her running. in Yubabu in particular. The sound that they have for her just running about. Like they it's really satisfying to listen to. That might just be me being really weird. Um, but I really, really enjoyed that. I thought that was um, a really cool sound effect. And again, just you know, the people responsible for that. You're doing a great job. I really like that. Um, so yeah, that deal's been made. And he's obviously going to go fly off and try and find Sen and Co now. Who, um, just so happened, have arrived at their destination on the train. And I'm guessing there's a joke here about Pixar. Because um, they are greeted by, like, a lamp. Um, and it's like, you know, a traditional looking kind of, you know, Victorian kind of lamp light, if you will. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, the, the pole. And then at the end of it is like this giant, like, gloved hand. And it, like, bounces along. So it's like the bouncing lamp that makes the Pixar thing. You know, when it, like, jumps on the eye and it's like, ooh, you know, that thing. I think it's probably a reference to that. It feels like very much a purposeful thing. But I'm also thinking, like, when did Pixar start? It was definitely before this, wasn't it? Because Toy Story was, like, 1999 or something, wasn't it? So I, I think it might be a reference to Pixar or it's just a complete coincidence. I kind of took it as a, a Pixar joke. Um, 
you know, with the jumping lamp thing, I assume it does exist at this point, because even like the sound effect of it jumping is very, very similar. So I'm guessing it's like a tongue in cheek reference to that, I would assume. Um, either way, I called it the Pixar lamp very lovingly as well, because I thought it was a very, if that's a genuine reference, I think that's absolutely brilliant. Um, and then that thing kind of just leads them to Zaniba's house. Um, and Sen gives her the seal back and kind of that, you know, can you forgive Haku, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's not responsible, please. Um, and she's like, oh, the spell's kind of gone from this seal now. Eh. Um, and she also reveals that the bug thing that Haku spat up with the seal that Sen then stepped on, um, it wasn't like something that was doing that damage to him, you know. It was actually something that Yubabu, um, or you Yambuba? Yeah, Yubabu. I've written it, I've written, every time I've written this name down, it's different. So I'm so sorry if I've been saying her name on this entire time. Um, Yubabu, whatever. Um, she put that bug thing actually inside Haku to control him. So it does his bidding. And the fact that he spat that out is why he's a lot more confrontational with her now. Because she doesn't have as much of a hold on him anymore. Other than the fact that she knows his name, I guess. Um, but, you know, less of a grip than she had before. So he's a bit more confrontational, which I liked. Um... So yeah, that was all very well and good. And Zanira actually seems like a really nice kind of wholesome person. Um, she then makes Sen this kind of hair tie. She just says to protect her. I don't know exactly what that means and how that protects her. I don't know if that ever really comes back into play other than the ending. Um, so I don't think they really explore that much. But she gives it to her anyway. And, you know, Sen's been having... She had her hair tied up this whole movie, but she swaps out for this new one that's supposed to protect her. Um, Haku then arrives to take them back. He kind of finds them. Um, and Zaniba kind of, you know, says, you know, I, I don't blame you for stealing the thing anymore, Haku, you know, it wasn't you, etc. Um, and the No-Face, she asks the No-Face to stay with her and be like her helper. I guess she kind of senses like it's actually a very lonely creature and it's just kind of attaching itself to anyone that shows it even the slightest bit of positivity and friendship. Um, so the No-Face now kind of has a sense of purpose and agrees to stay with her. Um, and then Haku flies all the others back. Um, and it's during this that we get, I guess, like the really big revelation of the film as they're flying back, um, because Sen suddenly kind of remembers, um, she was saved, um, as a little girl from drowning and she fell into the Kohaku River, Kohahu River, um, and, um, she was saved and like protected by Haku who was actually um, the river spirit of that river that she fell into. Um, so therefore, Kohahu, Kokaku, I, I don't know, my writing's so terrible, I don't actually remember what it is properly. Um, whatever the name of that river was, that's his real name. She's like, that's what your name is. Um, so that then causes him to transform back into his human self and they kind of just fall down into the sea together. Probably a better time and place to actually tell him that, you know, um, before you crash and die. Um but yeah, it's a really nice sequence anyway when you kind of realise that's his name, you know, the, the spell and the power that Yubabu had over him is broken. He can transform back now. Um, so he transforms back into his human form. They fly down and kind of have a nice moment together. Because um, I'd felt up until this point, like, they keep saying, like, oh, look, they're in love with each other. And, oh, love. And I'm like, they've spent three minutes together and you're telling me that they're in love? Like, I don't buy that for a second. Like, why is this happening? Why do they have these instincts about each other? And I was like, this feels really forced. Um, but then you kind of get this revelation, like, okay, that makes a bit more sense now. I, I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, so yeah, that was all cool. They fly on down and return. Everyone's happy to see them 
Um, and we even get a bit of character development for the baby thing because they, at this point, was it Zaniba who turned them back? I think she did. She turned the baby back. Um, oh, actually, no. I think that happens when they get back. I think maybe Yubabu is the one who does it. And it's at this point the baby's like, you know, I left. I had a really good time when I was away. You didn't even notice I was gone, bitch. Um, not not those exact words. Um, but she's kind of saying, you know, you need to keep your word or I'll be angry at you forever or something like that. So a nice bit of character development for the baby, who's no longer a jerk. So that's nice. Um, you know, a very meaningful journey that that creature went on as well. So there you go. Um, and then she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, final test. And she has all these like pigs um, together. And she's like, you are free to go. Your parents are free to go. If you can correctly identify which of these two pigs are your parents. Chihiro kind of gets her name back now at this point. She kind of um, just looks over the pigs. She takes a little bit of a moment. Um, and she's like, you tricksy bitch. You know, my parents aren't there. They aren't one of the any of these pigs, um, which is obviously the correct answer. So she's kind of solved that. And, you know, one last kind of trick, Guess I, I guess showing that Yubabu is kind of not really that redeemable. And she has some good moments, but overall she's a bit of a bitch. Um, and then Yubabu's like, oh, fine, you win, you can go. Um, so, you know, everyone's like cheering and waving her off. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. So her and Haku go to leave together. Um... Haku, I can't. He can't escape the same way she can. I think he has to find his own way back to you know where he belongs. But he can now escape. I think now that he knows his name. Um, so you know he sends her on um, and says you know he'll he'll leave his own way. And he you know has the, he knows that they'll find each other again. They'll see each other again. He you know they have that feeling again. Instinct coming back into play that they'll see each other again. Um, so off she goes. She runs and. She finds her parents waiting at the other side of the bridge um, and they are completely unaware of what's happened. You know, they think they've just explored the park a bit and come back and they've like eaten the food and come back and that's it. They had no idea that they've been transformed into pigs or any of that. Um, they think it's been basically no time at all. So you're kind of like, oh, then none of that actually happened. Then they find their car and it's like covered in leaves and dust and everything. So it's clearly actually been a, a little while. Um, and then they also kind of cut to the back of um, Chihiro's head and she's still got that hair tie on and that Zuniba gave her so clearly it did actually happen she's now got that thing on to protect her so I guess that's kind of what it means like she's going to be fine she's going to be protected no matter what comes next now um, then they all drive off into the distance the reunited family to start their new lives I guess um, the moving band people probably being like where the fuck are these people they're so late um, and then yeah fade to black end of film all's well that ends well credits um, so yeah a lot goes down, basically. Um, the fact that this all goes down and it's like just over two hours is kind of insane because the, they throw a lot at you, particularly in the second half. You know, again, it feels very much like here's something that happens, then here's something that happens. You know, the whole sequence with the river spirit, you know, it feels kind of very separate and stuff. And when I watched it, it felt very separate. Actually going through it there, I'm like, well, obviously there is setup there because she gets given the pellet thing that then saves the day on a few occasions a bit later on. So there is still kind of that connectivity. I don't think it's as cohesive as the first half is, um, but it, it definitely feels like, I guess, a tale of two halves, rather. Maybe two cohesive halves that don't blend together as much on a whole, which, you know, is absolutely fine. Um, and that's, again, that's just for me. Um, but I, I did personally prefer the world building and the setup of the first half as opposed to 
what just felt like a series of kind of short films one after the other, which I feel like made up the second half. Um, you know, with a few things that obviously then connect and stuff. And yeah, I also wasn't thrilled and like, you know, the the very forced love between Jahiro and Haku. I was like, I don't buy this. They spent no time together. And then obviously you get that reveal of him being the river spirit. Still don't really understand it. I'm going to be honest. Like, how does she work that out? That was just like an instinct that she knew it. Um, she just suddenly guessed it. Like she'd suddenly guessed that the dragon was Haku. Um, you know, it felt like a very last minute revelation in a way. They, they'd clearly set up like this connection. This Like they felt that they had this bond and that they kind of seen each other before and knew each other before. But I don't think they really set up very well, you know, the reveal like it came from she nearly drowned or whatever if it wasn't for Haku saving her and stuff. I feel like that probably could have, they could have planted the seeds a bit better than that. Because um, everything else about that reveal, I think, was quite well set up. Um, but yeah, there was that. And I will also say, I think I was left a bit cold by the ending. Um, I I just wanted a scene of Haku and Chihiro reuniting. And that I thought that would have been a nice ending. Um, like, maybe they, like, they drive to the house or something and then, you know, he's their next door neighbour. Or, you know, she just spots at the house, you know, there's a river right behind the house or something. And she, like, smiles and she's like, oh, he's going to be right there or something. Um, or maybe it's like setting up for a sequel I don't know, did they make a Spirited Away 2? Maybe um, but yeah, I just felt like, oh, it didn't f- quite feel complete when I got to the end there I feel like I wanted something a bit more but maybe it's just like, that's not how life works, is it? you know um, so again, I, I could deal with it I, I, you know, I did like that ending as it was but I was kind of, I wanted something a bit more of a punch I guess, to the ending um, than what we got but overall um I'm I'm really glad I finally watched Spirited Away. Um, and the fact that I've been talking about it for an hour and 40 minutes at this point, um, you know, I, I, hopefully that shows that I understood at least some parts. I might have misinterpreted some things. I might have got the plot wrong and some character names wrong at certain points. So again, I do apologise for that. You know, I was just kind of trying to read the subtitles, but also pay attention to the, the visuals um, of, you know, of which were stunning. Um, yeah, the film looks fantastic. Um, I really liked a lot of the characters. Um, there's some great kind of character moments in there. I think the highlights for me being when, you know, Chihiro kind of broke down that time in the first half of the film. I loved the bit with Lin as well, um, kind of saying to No Face, like, you know, don't you let any harm come to that girl, etc. Little character moments like that. Kamaji put, you know, covering, putting the blanket on Chihiro when she was asleep. Moments like that I, I thought really did shine. Um, but yeah, I, I much preferred personally the first half of the film, even though I still enjoyed the second half and there's a lot in there to do. And I, I loved the whole world of it. I'd, I could spend another 50 films like in this world and learn a bit more about how this all works. And again, the fact that they kind of got across this whole system and economy and the fact that that's, that's still going to be going on because they've just left it, you know, they didn't like destroy that business or anything. It goes on. Um, the fact that they established it and it's like you get a sense that this has been going on for so long it was so, so well done. Um, you know, you really do feel like this world has existed for so long, but only just kind of briefly diving into it. You know, it's really impressive that they managed to do that. Um, so, yeah, we had that, um, which I very much enjoyed. Um, the music was phenomenal. The animation's brilliant. I loved it. You know, the character designs in the world in general is like top tier. You know, I just I loved even the moments of like I have no clue what's going on. I was like, at least it looks nice. You know, I'm kind of invested in that. Um so yeah, I, I did very much enjoy that. I wish we had a bit more of Lin. Um, I really I really liked Yubabu as a character. 
and I thought the voice actress was phenomenal. She was great. I will say, I could have done without the baby. I don't think the baby needed to be in it at all. I know it was kind of there so that Haku could make a deal with her. Um, and it was like the way that, you know, Sen slash Chihiro ultimately escaped. But I don't know. I feel like there, there was some other workaround. It was just very weird. And it, again, it was just like the second half just felt like, is this thing that's going to happen? Now this thing happens. Now this thing happens. Now this character's introduced. Now this character's going to be here. Um, it just felt like a very different story to what was being set up originally um, in the first half, if you ask me. Um, it still kind of cohesively does work. And the payoff is good because, you know, the baby does have like a bit of character development stuff. But honestly, I could have done without those extra characters that came along for the ride to Zaniba's. It just felt like they were very tacked on last minute. And I just don't feel the need to be there. Um, even more so, you know, that bird creature that then gets transformed into the tinier bird thing that carries the mouse creature around. Like, do we even need that? Um, I don't know. It just felt like they had an idea for them and just wanted to put them in there. Um, there was a lot of just ideas and stuff thrown at you in the second half, I felt, that I don't think needed to be in there and kind of watered down the second half and maybe, yeah, kind of clogged it a bit and, like, watered down the stuff that could have really worked and they could have really leaned into, and like, maybe a bit more of Lynn, um, you know, maybe, you know, more of the ending or whatever, um, maybe more of a connection between you know, Yubabu and Zaniba, maybe like a reunion between them or something. Um, but again, that, maybe that's tying it up in too perfect a boat. So I can kind of get that as well. And at the end of the day, any of the comments I kind of have and things that I didn't maybe like as much, um, I look, I think back of like Miyazaki made this for, you know, this group of young girls and these family friends. And like, you know, I'm going to make a film for them and uh, uh, some that they can look up to in like Chihiro. So it's not actually really made for me anyway. So the fact that I liked it as much as I did, um, I think is testament to just how great this film is and definitely worthy of the success it clearly had. Um, and yeah, the voice cast were great. I would be very interested in re-watching it with the English dub to see how that voice cast holds up, um, even though I think I'm very much going to have in mind like these voices for these characters now. Um, but they're all great, and obviously the film still holds up after 20 years, like in terms of like how it looks and everything. It's beautifully done. Um, and yeah, just the world itself and the characters and everything, the way it's all designed, I think, is the big kind of success of this for me. Because um, I did kind of... The story lost me a bit in the second half, I will say. But it was still a, a bloody good story, nonetheless. And I did enjoy the characters and... Um, Chihiro as a character I thought felt so so real really well written and performed um and yeah I, I really enjoyed them I wish Haku kind of had maybe a bit more of a, a, a punch to him I guess as a character a bit more of a personality but you know he does also turn to a dragon because he's actually like a river spirit so do rivers have personalities maybe not um and yeah at least they won me over with the whole like oh they're in love thing I was like where is this coming from but you know, that reveal kind of made it make a bit more sense. And again, the social commentary on like capitalism and greed and pollution, all of that, I thought that was done really well done. Um, they kind of tied that into the narrative beautifully. Um, and, you know, a lot of the stuff they did set up paid off quite well. Others, I think maybe not as well. But overall, um, a bloody good film. You know, it, it's been like the top of my to watch list for you know over a decade. And I'm glad I finally had the chance to just sit down, you know, like, just watch it, Liam, for God's sake, finally. Um, and yeah, I, I can see why it's so well regarded and so universally praised and loved. Um, it, you can tell it's a labour of love. 
um, you know, you can tell it's a story they want to, to tell. You can tell they spent so much time making this world what it was, making the characters what they were. Um, and yeah, you really are spirited away when you watch it. You, you, they very much drag you along with the film and make you feel part of this world. Um, and, you know, you really get a sense like this was going on long before we dipped our toe into the world of Spirited Away and it will continue as well long after we're gone, this whole world and system that's been going on. Um, so, you know, I like that it wasn't a, 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 you know, a film about this young person just destroying this capitalist kind of regime and, you know, causing a revolution or anything because, you know, sadly that's not the reality of what the situation is. It's a much more personal story than that. Um, even if it, it felt like a sequence of things rather than an actual plot for me in the second half, I still really, really enjoyed it, and I'm I'm glad I kind of checked it out and had such a, a fun time with it. It was really well done. For me, I often enjoy things even more when I watch them again because I know what to expect from it now. Going in knowing what to expect um, and knowing what happens in the reveals and stuff, I can look out for a bit more detail and stuff and more foreshadowing that I might have missed. Um, and I think knowing what to expect watching it again I'm going to really like it even more the second time. So I'm looking forward to my second watch whenever I find time for it. Um, but even on this first watch, going into it completely blind and not knowing what to expect, the fact that I came away this impressed and, you know, I'm still thinking about it, you know, in the days since I've watched it and, you know, remembering certain sequences and, and certain bits of music and, you know, certain visuals, certain character beats. Um, you know, again, I, I made my notes on this a couple of days ago and I still remembered, like, what I was talking about. I still made sense of them all. So clearly, you know, what I wanted to get from it stuck with me. What I wanted to kind of talk about stuck with me. Really glad I can finally tick Spirited Away off the list of things that I really should have watched by now but haven't. Um, and that's going to be how we continue on, I guess. Um, I'd, again, this is going to be a very kind of evolving kind of podcast, I guess, in terms of how I approach it. I might not talk to talk through, you know, the plot in as much detail in the future, Um I may go into more of it in future. Who can say? But um, for now, that's kind of how I've gone about it. Hopefully you've got something out of this discussion, even if it's like, no, I disagree. You're completely wrong about this. You suck. Um, if that is how you feel, don't let me know. Just <laughs> listen to something else. But um, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on Spirit Away. Really enjoyed it. Um, really great time. And um, hopefully you kind of enjoyed getting something out of this as well. If you've seen it, um, I'm sure you have, because I'm very, very, very late to the party on this one, 20 years late. Um, do um, let me know your thoughts on it and what your favourite parts were, your favourite characters, etc. Um, you know, what did you like about it? What did you dislike about it? Um, let's have a discussion about it, because I, I finally can discuss it at long last. So yeah, I really, really enjoyed this, and I can't wait to check out more of stuff Studio Ghibli, Ghibli has done. Um, very excited for that. Um, but for now, um, that is it for this first pilot episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, and should I continue, and I imagine I will, because I have already watched the film for episode two, so it'd be a waste to have made all my notes on it and then not actually make something with them. Um, next time, I'm going to be looking at The Nightmare Before Christmas. Again, it's another thing that's, I think it's even older than Spirited Away at this point. I think it was like 93 or something. So it came out even before I was born. Um, and it's something I've always wanted to check out and um, finally managed it. And I actually watched it immediately after Spirited Away. Um, so, you know, I, I did like a double bill of these two for these first two episodes. 
So we can talk all about that and you can hear my thoughts on The Nightmare Before Christmas in the next episode. Um, but that is going to be everything for now. Um, I hope you enjoyed and thanks for listening and I will see you next time.